Hey everyone, it's Will and James here. Welcome to the Pure Sport Project. We want to jump into the minds of people we find inspiring from all walks of life. Bringing you their stories, lessons learned along the way, and future plans. So tune in for some of them wholesome yarns. Welcome back to the Pure Sport Project. The guest always does the introduction because sometimes I'll butcher it and say something I shouldn't say or do the person a disservice. So joined by the man, Sean Stafford. Feel free to do your own intro. you want me to do my own intro? I hate doing that. Put you on the spot. Nah. We were just talking a little bit off air. Like if you do your due diligence and you go on like Wikipedia or Google, as you said, like you genuinely don't know where to start, right? It's been a long road and I kind of feel that my journey in the fitness space has just meandered over the past 20 years. You know, it's from starting off in sport, you know, playing rugby, then sort of becoming a trainer, owning a gym, doing the social media stuff, competing in men's physique, doing taking the WBFF to Europe, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then more recently getting involved with Ghost and all the stuff that goes along with that. It's just, where do you start? So yeah, I just, I would say that I'm, I'm a guy that's been in fitness and in the fitness space, social media, sport, you know, all that good stuff for 20 years. And I'm clinging on by like the uh, by the fingernails just trying to stay involved and trying to stay part of it but it's it's been a been a hell of a ride holding on to the rig as well for 20 years on that's that's some feet holding on to that it's it's amazing how i was training i was in chicago last week i was training with one of the founders of ghost and he was like mate you're you're still still holding it down i was like you literally have not i train twice a week max (laughs) (laughs) and i do it so half-heartedly as well like it's just literally going through the motions but he said he said something and it landed he was like to be fair you've been in the trenches for 15 20 years Mm -hmm. you've got enough sort of equity in the bank you've paid your tax you're now kind of collecting the dividends where you can almost take your foot off the gas a little bit and still get away with it but my time will come where I'll suddenly look look in the mirror and go like, do you know what? You need to you need to step it up. You need to get back in the game. <laughs> you've done that like the ten thousand hours rule, right? But you've done that with just training your physique, right? Well, yeah, we could probably work that out. I've probably trained four hours, maybe five hours a week for probably twenty two years. Let's do the math. Do the math. Calculator. Calculator. You know, this is where they go like. So what did you, how many hours a week? Five, I'd say on average five. Five times, and let's say you did it for 50, 50, weeks. 50 weeks of the year. Yeah. Quick maths. Times what? 20. 22. I'm old. Five and a half thousand. That's close oh, enough. It's, it's not even half. <laughs> it's not even half of that. That's massively let me down. I've, I'm disappointed in myself. Yeah, I was expecting like 20,000 hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fake news. Yeah, yeah. So, I, like, I've obviously seen and known who you are for a very long time, and it was probably only maybe like two or three years ago that I actually got to meet you. But you know, when you're like growing up and you see the people in the fitness industry and I feel like you're ageless, like. I haven't aged. For, and yeah, I, have, I, I like, genuinely look the same when I was 25. <laughs> Just a jacked Fernando Torres, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the funniest videos I've seen in a long time. It's one of those things where like with, for everything that I've kind of, I would say achieved in, in a fairly lengthy career, the two things that I get recognized the most for is looking like Fernando Torres and being in the Sidemen video. <laughs> like, like, so this is it. So I'm like, all of the things you've done with your career, but those two things. Correct. It's like got absolutely nothing to do with my degrees or like the, the accolades and all this and the achievements. It's 
looking like Fernando Torres, which I'm just genetically blessed with or, <laughs> or cursed with, you decide, and being in two Sidemen videos. Amazing. Thanks for coming. All that hard work and that's what you're off. for. I wanted to delve into it because I did a little bit of digging because obviously I knew you through Optimum Nutrition and Gymshark and all like the covers and things that you did over the years. But I want to go a little bit further back than that because I did some digging and then I found out that you were a rugby player to a, a, a decent standard from what uh, I saw. Do, do you know what? On paper, it's actually better than it was. Do you know what I mean? Like I was fairly average. Yeah. Like I, I played in a few good teams, oh, yeah. but I was definitely the weak link. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I just, been I, at some point, filling out I the just, numbers. Yeah, <laughs> like, I just really loved it. And you know, when it's like you, sometimes it's like, you know, when you get like the most improved certificate, I genuinely feel like my rugby career was pretty much that. Like I got to a reasonable standard, played for some really good teams, but I was genuinely the guy that just was never late to training. I was always captain because I was always like the most enthusiastic. And I think that actually bought me like that, and that enthusiasm, yeah, that enthusiasm and like dedication to just absolutely loving it, like definitely got me playing higher than I should have done. Yeah, yeah. Out of interest, what position did you play? Because I, I read that you were seventy kilos at six foot one point, and yeah, your coach yeah, yeah. said you need to put some weight on. It changed throughout the career, so I started off kind of as a scrum half, mm-hmm. and then moved to fly half. That was very short lived because I didn't have the game management or the skill set. Then they threw me to outside centre, and then probably the highest standard was kind of wing fullback. Mm-hmm. So as the standard got higher, they got me further and further away from the ball. <laughs> ended up on the bench. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then ended the career on the bench. Absolutely. So they were kind of like, yeah, I used to play in the middle, be involved with everything. And then as the standard got higher and I got older, they just pushed me further and further out. Yeah, nice. And what age did you play to? I played good level 15s until I was about 22. And then... I had a, a pretty serious injury when I was at uni. So I broke my broke my shoulder, which kind of knocked me out for a good 18 months. And it was one of those things where that cost me so much of what I genuinely enjoyed doing, which at the time was everything from running, training, like just life. Because when I was in a sling and cast and everything for that amount of time, it was like six months, you just can't do anything. And it almost put me off rugby. Like I was like, I don't want to go back. Because if I get injured again, I don't know if I can do this again. Like, I don't know if I can live, like, just not being able to enjoy other so many other areas of my life. Mm-hmm. So I, I say that injury kind of, I wouldn't say it scared me, but it definitely put me off kind of going back because the juice just wasn't worth the squeeze for me. And then so I took probably a couple of years off. And then a load of my mates and guys I used to play with went to Loughborough. And they all played Leicester Tigers and a lot of those clubs up north. And they had a sevens team. And they basically just lent into me and said, mate, come on, this has been a long time coming. So I ended up playing sevens, a like invitational standard for another three or four years. So that took me to probably 27, 28. And then I retired. Yeah. Was it a tough choice or you were just like, you know what, I'm actually just done with this. I don't want to play anymore. I'm done with it. Yeah. yeah. It was it was a case of, and I think probably a lot of people listening will, they'll, they'll be going through that themselves if they're in that kind of 28, 29, mm-hmm. your body doesn't recover you start to have priorities outside of rugby. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the cost sometimes just becomes too much. Mm-hmm. You know, you get out of bed on a Sunday or a Monday, having played on the weekend, and you're just broken. Mm-hmm. Or what we were doing when we were traveling for sevens, you know, you'd, you'd have a flight here or a flight there. And a lot of it, you know, you dig into your own pocket for it, you know, because as much as it's expenses paid, it's really not. And then you're taking time off work. At the time I was a PT, so it was like self-employed. Mm-hmm. It means, you know, if I was going to go to Dubai sevens, yeah, it's a week, 10 days, 
expenses paid, but it means I'm not working for 10 days. I'm still paying my rent at home, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it just came to that point in my life where I was like, Do you know what? There's other things I want to invest my time, effort and focus on. And it, I didn't really look back. I remember turning up to work because I was a PT as well at one point. And I remember turning up in like on crutches. Yeah. And I was like, how am I supposed to coach someone how and like demo a squat when I can't even put weight on my ankle? And it's little things like that, right? Because as much as PT is like, you know, you can be as hard ass as you like, you know, you are spotting people and you are, you know, it's a physical job. You're on your feet for 10, 15,000 steps a day. Easy. You're on crutches. You can't do that. But if you put your back out or you've broken a shoulder or you've broken your arm or you've got nerve damage in your neck, it makes you shitter. It, ma- it, well, it doesn't make you shitter at your job. Mm-hmm. It just makes your job that much harder mm-hmm. and it makes you that much less effective at it. And if people are paying you top dollar, mm-hmm. your performance does drop and therefore they're not getting the value that they expect. And then all of a sudden your business starts to drop off. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued with like your, you said you started a scrum half. Yeah. Like, what was your physique growing up? Like, were you naturally really skinny and small or you were super skinny, super fast, but I kind of didn't grow till I was about 16. I played first 15 rugby at 15. So I had to like sign a waiver, but I was scrum. I was, I was, yeah, I was scrum. Your parents to agree to it. Yeah, he's okay. It wasn't that much. I went to boarding school. So my parents were in a different country and my tutor was also my rugby coach and my my housemaster was almost also my rugby coach. And he was just kind of, he was the one that would take me to county training and take me to all the trials and all that sort of stuff. So he was invested and they didn't, I think, I think their scrum half got like the, the first 15 scrum half got injured and they just, we were a small school. So there was no one else that was any good. Mm-hmm. So they didn't just like, you know, have to sign a waiver and, and go and play. So I was playing first 15 rugby at 15, but I hadn't hit my growth spurt then. Mm-hmm. So I was still probably what, five, eight, five, nine. And then all of a sudden at kind of 16, 17, I shot up to six foot, but didn't fill out. So I think I was like, as I said, like 68 kilos at six foot, yeah. at kind of 17, 18. So it was a, it was an interesting time, like not your classic rugby player build. Yeah. I remember like those kind of ages as well. There's always a big physical difference between some players where some players had just hit puberty early and they were blokes at 16. I remember going to county rugby at 16, turning up and just being like young, probably baby faced. There was a lad with a beard yeah. at 16. And I was like, I'm supposed to be playing against these people that are like blokes. And then I've also got people in there that hadn't hit puberty at all, you know, and they were still like young, young boys and they were all just thrown into the mix together. And you really start to see people separate. And it's always the lads that probably were a little bit more advanced that seemed to go into the academies and stuff just because they were physically more developed. And especially in a game like rugby, being more physically developed, right, is just such an advantage more so than I guess football or something where it's a little bit more skill-based. Yeah, like even at school, we had a guy that was... England under 16s so he played like when we were a small school so he was a gun in our school like you know he was like like under 16 so Colts he was like unplayable like played for England under 16 level on the back row like he didn't even make the first 15 by the time it came to 18 because he just didn't grow everyone just caught he was like he was a big lad at 15 like he just didn't grow so you fast forward three years he's a small lad at 18 on the back row was just getting killed like he didn't even make like the first 15 so that's how those kind of three to four years between like 14 15 up to 17 18 19 like it makes a huge difference mm-hmm. like i remember one of my first jobs in strength and conditioning was i was kind of working with london irish academy just helping their junior athletes so like anything from 12 to 16 just learn how to move properly like in terms of you know 
it's all broomstick stuff. You're not really teaching them any weights, but you're just getting them body conscious and working on their proprioception and all, all that sort of stuff. But I remember there was like the coach said to me one time, we've got a guy coming in, he's 15, but he's playing England under 18s. And I was like, you're what now? And he's like, but he's just coming in because he needs to, he needs to do his, his, you know, he needs to pay his dues and go through the program and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. This guy walked in. I actually think it was, remember Tom Reese? He played for Wasps. He played for England. Like he was yeah, a yeah, flanker. Yeah. Like, yeah. like he was, he was touted as like an England flat, like an England captain. But I think he had like glass knees and I think he had to retire. And now I think he's a medical doctor, but I think it was his younger brother. Cause I think the surname was Reese. But this kid walked in at 16. <laughs> He looked like my dad. Do you know what I mean? Like he was like full on, as you said, like full on hairy chest. Yeah. And there's me like as a 21, 22 year old, like strength coach, like going, this guy's physically more developed than me. Like his knuckles were dragging along the ground. And I was like, you put this guy in against his own age, he will kill people, like genuinely kill people. So I was like, that's not really fair, which is why they had to play him up. That's why he was like not playing for under 16s. He was playing for like under 17s, under 18s. Yeah. I'm 32 and still not there. I'm still waiting for that. Still waiting for that growth growth spurt to kick in. So like, obviously the rugby was the, the initial passion. Was it during your rugby days that obviously you found a passion for, for training and that kind of stuff? Or was it afterwards? No, it was during. Yeah. And that was probably one of the reasons why kind of taking a step back from it wasn't such a, like a, a massive sacrifice. Because, you know, when I, when I went to university, I still was tiny. I went to a good rugby university. I got, you can drop it. I know, yeah, what, I know which one it is. You can drop it in there if you want. You know, we, we have a varsity match. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, a, a big... Um, we have a boat race as well, we I think. Yeah, 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 one of those ones. One of those ones. I forget what they're called, but they, I Oxbridge. think they're pretty big. Oxbridge. <laughs> I went to a good university, a good rugby university, and I remember rocking up and just being really small. And the, one of the coaches said, look, if you want to take this seriously, if you want to really take it to the next level, you have to go to the gym. Like, you have to get into it. And I was like, oh, I like the gym. So I don't really find it a problem. So I went into the gym, it was kind of under the stadium, a little bit like this, you know, in an arch, kind of like under the stadium, like very spit and sawdust, but I remember like getting into it and the changes that I saw in my body in like the first month of weight training, I was hooked. And I I got into it kind of just as like the end of summer term Mm -hmm. was happening. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go to back home for summer, back to my parents' place, and I'm going to go to the local gym and I'm going to make them give me a job. And so I literally, as soon as I finished that term, went back, went to my local leisure centre gym in, in Winchester, River Park Leisure Centre, crew in the house. What? <laughs> RPLC. What is are that- the chances someone from that is listening to this? If you are, send us a message. Yeah. That's <laughs> the RPLC crew, it doesn't exist anymore. It's been like knocked down and it's now like residential development. But yeah, it was a great, like properly, you know, imagine like as a 19, 20 year old fitness instructor. So I went in and I just said to the manager, I was like, hey, look, I've got a sports science A-level. I think that qualifies me to be a fitness instructor. Can you give me a job? So it's one of those ones where, like I said, I'm going to be in here all the time. So you might as well give me a job. And he was like, all right, cool. And so he gave me four shifts a week. And he was a bit of a legend. Scott, if you're listening, very, 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 very low chance. Because <laughs> I, I think he's like a teacher now. He was like, yeah, cool. And so he gave me like an 11-7 every day, like fitness instructor. And I used to go in in the morning before shift, train, eat massive, go and like eat a Sainsbury's lasagna, and then do like an eight-hour shift on the desk, like helping people with their training and just being a being a general nuisance fitness instructor. And then I'd do a second session in the like the evening. 
and then I'd go home. I'd do that four times a week. I went back to university, like second year, sort of like start first term, and they just looked at me and was like, "What the hell happened to you?" And I went and I went from like seventy kilos to like ninety kilos in a summer. What? Yeah. Shout out the yeah. yeah. I'll tell you how grotesque I was, and this isn't this isn't I don't I don't advocate this. This is how grotesque I was. I would go and get like a, a Tesco's value lasagna like a two-person one, right? I think they were like two pounds or like one ninety I'd stick it in the microwave. And then I, would, I wouldn't I would use a knife and fork. I would use a loaf of bread. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It's because I, I was a skinny kid and I was, I was getting, I was training twice and I just needed to be fueled. And so I'd, I'd like use the sliced bread and I'd use that as like a spoon and shovel it in. <laughs> like disgusting human being. But um, it worked because like, don't, don't get me wrong, I wasn't shredded, but I was, big compared to what I was when I sort of left in the summer and they kind of I got I got a bit of a run in the team and like just the difference that it made and I still managed to keep my pace up a little bit mm-hmm. but it was that time when I probably wasn't as educated with my training I wasn't really following good programming good strength and conditioning programming back then and it was like it was one of those things where I got big mm-hmm. but I know that I got dysfunctional mm-hmm. and do you know what I mean and it was one of those things where it, it wasn't a coincidence that all the injuries that I kind of picked up in my career happened when I was slightly dysfunctional. My joints weren't structurally balanced. The, the, the collisions that I was going into mm-hmm. were much heavier, much bigger, and my body just broke. It wasn't conditioned for rugby at that level. Mm-hmm. What it was conditioned for was bodybuilding. Yeah, but I think, because I had the same thing, like when I was at school and they said to me, like, you need to start going to the gym now. Like I was never light. I was probably like 90 kilos at, 17 but they, but they were like at fly half and they were like right you need to start going to the gym because there was like lads there that were at like Quinn's academy and london irish yeah, academy yeah. and they were like these lads are going to the gym they're having like proper snc coaching you need to go to the gym and i was like nah because that's going to make me slow that was like the thought process back there i was like don't go to the gym because that's going to make me slow whereas now with like all the research and the studies that you've seen over the last few years you understand how it works but back then it was very much just like you went to the gym and you just lifted stuff yeah. and it was probably not actually useful for rugby in any sense like it didn't actually make you any faster or anything but you just got bigger and stronger but not necessarily better at rugby yeah not you weren't more powerful you weren't more balanced you just mm-hmm. chucked on timber yeah, yeah. which when rug- like rugby is a game of collisions but it's also especially if you're in the backs it's a game of speed right mm-hmm. like it's and even in the forwards i guess it's it's quickest to the breakdown you know quick you know find the space work the space and, and run around the pitch for 80 mm-hmm. minutes the bigger you are that's not going to be your friend. Mm-hmm. Like, don't get me wrong, it'll help you in the collisions and all that sort of stuff. But you look at, there was like a real trend towards just people that were just massive, wasn't it? For a while in like yeah, professional yeah. rugby, it was just like the bigger you are, the better you are. And then it kind of, all of a sudden, it really shifted to that combination of speed and power. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where we are now. It's just, you know, none of the players that are massive now are slow. Mm-hmm. Like none of them. Yeah, my thought process is always like, it's all well and good being big, but, if you run into two people, that's always going to be bigger than you, right? But if you're fast enough, no one can actually touch you. So it doesn't matter how big they are or how strong they are. If they can't touch you and you're running on the outside of them, you don't have to be big because you can just run around them, right? So I think, yeah, speed is speed kills, as they say. Speed is king. I like that. When was the last time you ran? Oh, I did a fresh fitness food 5K the other day and it nearly oh, killed me. Thing. Yeah, oh yeah. my God. <laughs> it's one, yeah. I used to love running. So I, I, I've only done, I've done one marathon. Did one marathon, one and done. Which one? Uh, the Everest marathon. 
Oh, I read this as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, I just, and there's, there, it was pure strategy why I did it as well. So many tangents. We can go yeah, well, yeah, yeah, this is this is going to get rogue. Yeah. So it was bizarrely because in one of my gyms we have we had an altitude center, like an altitude like it's like bigger than this room, like it was a full hypoxic chamber. And one of the guys that came, who was actually being sponsored by Gymshark at the time, he was going to do something. He was going to run seven marathons, seven of the most exotic marathons in the world in a year. And he came to us and said, oh, can we train in the altitude chamber? And I was like, yeah, shouldn't, shouldn't be a problem. I was like, why are you training in the altitude chamber? He's like, I'm going to do the Everest marathon. I was like, that sounds terrible. I was like, what's that about? And he goes, so basically we trek to base camp. You stay at base camp. And then you run a marathon up there through the ice fields. How high is base camp? It's five and a half thousand meters. Christ. Okay. Yeah, it's not yeah. a lot. Of, so blood oxygen level. So like when I was sleeping at base camp, my blood oxygen, my SPO was like 77. Mm-hmm. So you're 30 odd, you're 20, you know, 20 to 30% down in terms of your blood oxygen. But also it's, it's more than that because it's a real hardship and it's going to sound funny but like just getting to the start line mm-hmm. is brutal mm-hmm. like it's two weeks you trek for two weeks up and down up and down so you don't get out you don't get sort of altitude sickness but it's just like the the degradation on your body and your mind and everything because as you go higher the environment takes more and more from you mm-hmm. and also your surroundings like the bathroom facilities get worse and worse and worse the, the quality of the nutrition the higher you go gets worse and worse and worse as you get more remote you get more isolated mm-hmm. and it's tough like it's tough for two weeks and you're pretty much with a bunch of strangers anyway i'm diverging but anyway the guy the guy that came to the chamber was like oh i'm doing this this marathon and i said who are you doing that with and he goes no one he goes i haven't met anyone crazy enough to do it with me and i said when is it and he goes three months i said i'm in he knew, he knew, he dangled uh, that yeah, carrot yeah, and yeah. you bit. Yeah, he knew. And Ash, he's a, he's a really good lad. Like he did this whole thing called Run Global 7 or Global Run 7, which was like a big thing for charity, but he did a really good job on it. But we did the we did the Everest Marathon together and it's like, I thought if I'm going to do a marathon, it needs to be something like a little bit crazy like that because the worst, because I'm not a natural runner and I can't imagine like somebody, oh, have you done a marathon? Like, what's your time? And I'd be like, and I'd be like, oh, I probably, I reckon if I really trained hard, I could run a three hour 30, mm-hmm. right? I think if I really dedicated it for like a year, I could run a three hour 30 marathon. Mm-hmm. And I say, oh, what's your time? Oh, three hours 30. Oh, there's a girl at work that dressed as a hippo and ran faster than that. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I don't think I could handle that. Do you know what I mean? So I was like, do you know what? I'm going to do a marathon. I think, I think I did it in eight hours. Yeah. But when you say it was marathon, eight hours. So like, oh, I was like, yeah, it was up Everest. Oh yeah, yeah. Just so that was it. That, in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was kind of the thing. But also, like, I thought if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, like, go big, go big, go big or go home. What was the terrain like? Was it all on like roads? Because obviously, that far up, it's all like, scrambling are... over rocks and whatnot. Yeah, there's no roads. It's it's yak tracks. It's ice fields. It's moraine fields. It's yeah. it's the worst. You know when they're in Armageddon, where they're like worst worst environment possible. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit like that. <laughs> like picture and imagine like being on Mars. Mm-hmm. That's what it's like. Yeah, it's very I went, average. I went up a mountain a few weeks back and it was like 4,000 meters and just walking, my heart rate was at like 160. So I can't imagine what running would have been like for that long. And also 4,000 4, meters is kind of where the shit gets real. Mm. So like the Sherpas and the guys we were with on the trek were kind of like, everything everything to 4,000 is, is okay. Because mm. after 4,000, he goes, that's when everything, he goes, that's when everything changes. He goes, that's when your body does not have the oxygen it needs 
to support life at a premium level. They're kind of like the environment will take more from you every single day than it's giving to you. And so that's, yeah. So 4,000 meters is like, there's a place, I think it's called Den Boshe, which is kind of like the 4,000 meter point. It's where you, it's the first night you sleep at 4,000 plus. And I think the amount of people that were sick that night and got and developed altitude sickness from that point onwards was like exponential. I think we had like one before that point. I think we had like 12 in the group after that. So, so they have to go lower. They have to go lower, acclimatize and then come back. Yeah, like I was feeling dizzy at like 4,000 meters. There was one like just started falling asleep, just stood there, just started falling asleep. Lads were stood there still for 30 minutes. Heart rate was still at 130. You don't really appreciate it until you get up there and you realize how hard just walking around is and your heart rate's through, you're burning through calories faster than you can get them in. So going up an extra few thousand meters and then running a marathon, I'm in, I'll do it. But you should do it. Like it's, <laughs> it's, do it. it's genuinely, it's it's very challenging. And it's one of those things where I think I cried when I finished it. It took eight hours. And I did it to, to try and raise some money for an orphanage in Nepal as well. So there was kind of that. And I, and I went to visit the kids and I went to visit the orphanage before I, before I set off on the race. And it was one of those things where I actually caught pneumonia at base camp. So like I got like, there's something called the, like the Kumbu cough, which is like the Kumbu glacier. There's like a lot of dust that blows off of it and it kind of gets into your lungs and it makes you cough. And it kind of, for me, it developed with the extreme temperature differences. It kind of developed into pneumonia. And so I kind of picked up pneumonia in kind of the three days when I was at base camp and then had to run a marathon. So I genuinely wasn't sure if I was going to be able to finish. Like, I, So it was like kind of the end of like this three-week like marathon trek. And I was sitting there going, like, I genuinely feel shit. And like, I've got to run a marathon, which I've never done before. Over 7,000 meters of up and down. Mm-hmm over the worst terrain possible mm. at 5,000 meters plus. I was like, I genuinely don't know if I can do this. And did you do it with this, this did you say his name was Ash? Ash, no, Ash was too, uh, uh, credit to him, he was too quick. I didn't want to do it with him okay. because I didn't want to hold him back. Like, because he's such a good bloke, he would have stayed with me mm-hmm. the whole way. And I didn't want that for him. Like he's there, like go and run it as fast as you can. I think he came up in the top 10 for non-Nepalese guys. So like, he, he, he smashed it, so good on him. But like, I genuinely was like, I did it with this other guy, a big Dutch guy called Harry, who's like, uh, I think he's pretty much, don't don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure he's like ex-special forces in, in Holland. He's a badass. Mm-hmm. And, he, and we just basically did it together, like crushed it. Mm-hmm. And at the end, I was so relieved that like after three weeks of just brutal, brutal just pressure that I'd done it. I literally, I called my wife to, like, to say I'd done it. And I just literally burst out crying. She was like, she was like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I don't know why I can't stop crying. I was like, I'm just so happy to have finished it. Like, like it's really good. Like I've, I can now send all the money to the kids and like, it's a big tick in the box. Like I'm really happy. But like, I think it was just relief. Like that pent up emotion that like you'd been kind of storing up and that anxiety that had been mm-hmm. bubbling under the surface of like, Will that will this will I actually be able to do this? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, just kind of like release, and then like the emotions flow. Did you have like a backpack on as well with all your bits and bobs in, or was it like you had aid stations so you could just? No, you have like bit? a yeah, you have like a little. I had a little camelback on, yeah, which was full of like electrolytes, mm-hmm. just to try and push you through it. Because eight hours is quite a long time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, it's a long time. Is it a lot of people do it then, or is it? Uh, there- I, I wouldn't say it's a lot. It's like 300. It's not massive. It's not how many thousands and thousands, how many hundreds of thousands do the London Marathon? 50,000, I yeah. think, every year. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot. So it's much, much smaller scale than that. But it's usually the guys that are a little bit badgerish. 
Do you know what I mean? Like the guys that are like running geeks. Yeah. Like yeah. the guys that are just fucking, they you know, just love it. Just, you know, they're yeah. just like Gooch. I'd love it. Yeah. Like, do you know, those people that like, they love ultra running and they breathe ultra running and they like, you know, they've all done Marathon de Sable. They've all done the Arctic. They've all done all that sort of stuff. And it's just kind of like a feather in the cap. I feel like you've got to be a little bit tapped to do stuff like that as well, to be in your own head for hours and hours and hours on end and like putting yourself through something. It's not even just like you're not doing something like you're putting yourself through probably agonizing hours. I think you've got to be a little bit, have a little bit of a screw loose to, to enjoy doing that, you know, to do it now and again, is like to tick something off, but to do it repeatedly like young Will does, it's just quite impressive to be fair to him. It's very impressive. But that's the thing, like it's just, and people like, people like him are built different. Yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? They're just, they're set up different and that's mm. cool. Yeah, so that was a tangent. That was this this body. Yeah, yeah. This body is going to be like a, a river. Yeah. We do not know which way it's going to go. Okay, so let's delve into the thing that I know you best for, and probably most people, apart from the people that know you from the sidemen videos, know you best for. So that's like the fitness stuff, right? So you started in the gym in Winchester, yeah, and then you've just like skyrocketed to like I'd say like global fitness fame because like everyone knows who you are everyone knows who like sean stafford is you were like one of the first ones you know that were like on the cover of men's health gymshark optimum nutrition everyone kind of knew who you were from when they first got into fitness or definitely my generation did i'm not sure about you you're a little bit younger than me but that's tom but yeah when i first came onto the scene it was like the same people and it's actually quite cool to be sat in a room with you pod- on a podcast with someone after so Stop many years it. of I'm seeing blushing. you. I'm blushing. <laughs> do you know what? And this is this is not me trying to be like like fake humble or whatever, but I do genuinely believe that it was a case of right time, right place, mm-hmm. stars aligning. Because I think a lot of things happened at a junction mm-hmm. that kind of just all fell into place and everything worked out the way it worked out. You know, the first one of those was me finishing rugby mm-hmm. and I was working in a gym. I I didn't really have, you know, much of a goal. And then, you know, one of the people I used to work with said, hey, why don't we do this fitness show? I was like, what is this fitness show? Let's have a look. And it was just kind of at the time when it was starting to take off, right? So it was very early, like first adopter. Mm. Like it was kind of at the time when fitness shows weren't really mainstream. They were kind of a little bit niche. And so I went and did like the British championships and did, you know, I did really well in that out of the blue kind of, I took that rugby player's physique and kind of honed it and like just dropped a load of fat and then jumped on stage and did all right, won that. And then you qualify for the Europeans and you're like, okay, so Europeans is in Reykjavik. It's in Iceland. Never been to Iceland. Let's go to that. You train for another three months. It's a real rogue place to have it. Uh, Reykjavik. Reykjavik. It was yeah. awesome. It was genuinely <laughs> it was real, awesome. Real random. It was in like the opera house in the harbour. Like it was a, like European championships of the WBFF. It was wicked. It was yeah. really good. But again, it was still at the stage where it was a little bit niche. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't going out and beating 50, 60 people in a, in a final. I was going out and probably beating 20 mm-hmm. max. So the, the odds are stacked in my favour compared to what they are now. Mm-hmm. So I said, right place, right time. Was there less kind of bodybuilding federations back then as well? I don't know. I'd say WBFF at the time was kind of the one. Mm-hmm. It's kind of IFBB was bodybuilding, mm-hmm. and WBFF was kind of like the first fitness guys. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, the men's health. That you know, they weren't looking to be muscle and fitness or those jacked three hundred and fifty pound guys. They were looking for the, who can be on the cover of Men's Health and sell some copies. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the, the judging criteria. It was, you know, 50% of it was marketability, stage presence, all that sort of stuff. And 50% was physique mm-hmm. or 60, 60, 40, something like that. 
And then after the Europeans, which I luckily, I did quite well in that one as well, qualified for the, for the world championships. And then just, and that was in Toronto in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, fuck it, let's just go. And it was my training for that, training for the world championships was kind of at the time when social media was just starting to bubble along. Mm-hmm. And there was a little thing called Facebook that no one was really using at the time. And I thought, do you know what I'm going to do? I've got like eight months until the world championships, little kid from England going up against all the Americans. I'm going to chart my journey and I'm going to do my journey on this thing called Facebook. So I set up a Facebook page, obviously it started with zero and then just started using a phone, recording my workout, editing them on my phone, like uploading them sort of daily. If I wasn't uploading a workout, I was uploading like a meal plan or I was uploading just like my training diary and my, how I was doing. And I kind of started this journey to the world championships, called it the road to the world and started with zero followers. And then by the time I got to the world championships, which was like eight months later, I had like 50,000 followers, which was awesome. And then I won the world championships and within a year I had a million so it was one of those things where it was kind of like... Yeah, what year was this as well? Oh, like 2012? Yeah, like, like this is when social media was not a thing. Like a million back then is probably like a billion now. Yeah. You've probably got like a, an eighth of the, the population of the world following you. So that was it. And it kind of just blew up from there. And so there was, with kind of like winning British European World Championships in like the first 18 months of my career in that, as well as it kind of being the, the junction in time when social media was kind of kicking off. Like there was no Instagram, there was no TikTok back then. It was kind of Facebook and that was it. Mm-hmm. Bebo or something or MySpace, yeah. whatever it was. I kind of just went all in. And then the opportunities that came from having a world title, having a million followers mm-hmm. and kind of just breaking into that space, you know, all of a sudden I got picked up by a supplement company, Optimum Nutrition, biggest supplement brand in the world. I was like, yeah, we can we need someone to walk around and hang out with Steve Cook. Do you want to be that guy? Yeah, sure. You know, Steve was at the time was the biggest thing in fitness, right? He had a huge YouTube audience, was massive on Instagram. Well, actually, no, Instagram didn't exist. Like it was one of those things where he was, you know, massive on social media. And so like, I kind of leveraged off that as well. So I kind of, we traveled around the world doing like expos and all that sort of stuff. It was amazing. It was like being like a rock star. And then, you know, things like Gymshark and then all that other stuff kind of compounds on it. And all of a sudden, I'm rocking up to India and I've got private security because I go into an expo hall and I get mobbed by 20,000 people. It's weird. Like Of the million people that followed me on Facebook, like 40% of them were in India. <laughs> like, And it was like, I think it's because I'm six foot blonde, jacked. Yeah. I rock up in India and it's just like, it was just unbelievable. And that's kind of when I was like, fuck, you know what, this is weird, but it's like brilliant. You genuinely feel like a rock star. We kind of rode that wave for like two, three, four years. It was amazing. How did you get into like all the bodybuilding side of stuff was it like someone came to you and said oh I'll give it a crack or were you just like lose a bit of fat and I could, could no it was it was literally like a girl that I used to work with in the gym like she'd seen it and said like we should do this like do you like I think you do quite well at it like do you want to do it and I was like I've got nothing else to do I've got nothing else to train for and I, it's really nice when you're training for something and so I just kind of went all in but it was yeah it wasn't it wasn't bodybuilding per se it was fitness so it was fitness modeling is what they called it right so it was a different judging criteria and all that sort of stuff but it it genuinely was just a bit of a punt it was like a she kind of bought it to me and said hey and she ended up going on to be an ifbb pro now she's one of like the most successful coaches out there she's brilliant she's got a whole team that follow all her stuff and she's done really well from it as well and we kind of like started it out as a bit of a bit of a bet bit of a dare like one day when we're just sitting having lunch in the gym and it's, and it's kind of like, and it's, it, it kind of leans into the whole, just say yes. 
Like yeah, just you never, um, you never know where something's going to go. Yeah. And it's one of those things where if I hadn't just said yes and hadn't just gone, let's just do this. It's a bit of fun. Like how different my life would be, be night and day. Yeah. Night and day. Those early days, because it was still very niche, right? Yeah. And there wasn't like the social media. There's like tens of thousands of people now. Like everyone has like a, a Facebook or no, sorry, like a fitness Instagram page yeah. or whatever. But I remember back then it was still like, not frowned upon, but kind of, joked about and you were kind of ridiculed a bit for posting these kind of things yeah. and being like one of the first ones to do it. Cause I remember, you know, like a few years after that, it was still just like a little bit out of the norm against yeah. the grain. Did you get much kind of feedback from people being like, what are you doing? This is so silly and all this kind of stuff. And did it make you doubt what you were doing? And do you know what it is? I think that might be a little bit of the rugby mentality. And I think it's still, you know, you see why. And I remember going to like a, Haskell's podcast and he was saying that like the values of rugby as a sport don't really align with social media PR marketing that sort of stuff they call it tall poppy syndrome right rugby is very much mm -hmm. you know team before the player etc etc so anybody that's doing anything on their own or you know kind of backing themselves or putting themselves out there it is frowned upon in rugby you know generationally whereas I think that kind of mentality definitely existed in mainstream culture like if you're walking into a gym and fucking taking a selfie people are gonna be looking at what the fuck is this guy doing like who is who does he think he is mm -hmm. you know so you could definitely get that but i'm also one of the guys that don't really give a shit like i'll just i'll just do me and you know i do it with a smile on my face do it with a you know a bit of a sense of humor and most people kind of get it or they don't and either way i don't really care so like you obviously are one of the ogs Old and, boys, yeah. the old boys. OGs, we'll call it OGs, the original ones. We So like I've seen it change over just like the years I've been, like maybe like what, six, seven years that I've kind of been involved in it as well, but you've been in it way, way longer before there was Instagram or anything like yeah. that. You've seen it change drastically how it's like commercialized now and there's loads of brands come into the space. Like you said, you're one of the first like optimum nutrition athletes, one of the Gymshark athletes. There are so many brands now that are involved in that space. What's probably the, the biggest thing that you've seen change over the years that's made this whole fitness thing so big? It's a good question. I think a lot of brands, and I think we're probably, if I'm honest, I think we're probably over the peak of it. Do you know what I mean? So I think we've ridden the wave and the wave is breaking. Mm -hmm. So just my own personal opinion and you know my experience in the industry is that there was definitely a time where you're riding that wave and speed's picking up. And brands don't really know what they're doing, but they know they need to be part of it, right? And so what they do is they just throw money, they throw money and they throw opportunity to see what lands. And they do really well because everything's on the up. It's like investing in stocks when everything's in a boom culture, right? And so that they, they just throw money at it, they get a good return, influencers get paid well, brands get good sales, and then it grows and grows and grows. And I think as time has gone on, and I think as social media has become more sophisticated and its power as a marketing tool and as a sales generator has become more sophisticated, obviously they've got to get paid, mm -hmm. right? So the platforms themselves, all gobbled up by Meta now, but kind of like all of these things, they need to get an ROI on their advertising revenue. They need to get an ROI on their engagement levels. And so it's one of those things where I think the space has just become much more complicated and much more sophisticated to a point where brands have teams looking into and there are platforms that analyze everything. Mm 
the data that you can pull from social media is so advanced Mm -hmm. that charlatans get found out pretty quick Mm -hmm. right so like and it's one of those things where and things change pretty quick you know all that needs to happen is for facebook or instagram or tiktok to change an algorithm and you can stitch up a whole swathe of people and you can see that happening now Mm -hmm. and it's one of those things where an audience will grow old with an influencer or an athlete or something like that whoever was following them when they were 16 17 18 will kind of follow them for that period of time for the next kind of five ten years but they become less relevant in the space and so that what brands are looking for and i think what social media then looks for is what's the next big thing right and i think that's kind of it's gone from facebook through instagram and now instagram is kind of through there was snapchat for a minute mm-hmm. that got shut down pretty quick with instagram <laughs> stories well done instagram but then there's tiktok and it's just that evolution of how people consume media that i think is incredibly complicated you really need to know what you're doing and it's one of those things where that pretty much getting paid a shit ton of money for not doing very much i think that's gone i think if you're a creator and you're a full-time content creator now it is a job and it is hard. And to stay on top of all the changes within the platforms, to be original with the content you produce, the quality of the content that consumers demand now, it's brutal. If you're not creating that content yourself, you're paying somebody a good amount of money to create it for you. And that's expensive. So it's one of those things where the space has definitely got much bigger, but it's also got much more complicated to navigate. And I think the upside and the margins on it are much, much tighter. It's not so much the Wild West where everyone's just like the land of milk and honey and everyone's getting paid. I think now it's the people that are really good are getting paid really well. And the people that potentially were getting good that are now less relevant or have less of a work ethic or are less switched on are falling to the wayside. And I think as brands, and you'll know this through your work with Pure Sport, the way you use and leverage influencers and talent is very, very different now than it was two or three years ago. Yeah, because you can just see that the customer is becoming very savvy to social media. You know, like three, four years ago, influencer had like a bit of a stigma around it. It was yeah. it was like cringy, da, da, da. but now it's become actually people follow people on social media because they want to be informed and they trust these opinions of people, whether it's a good opinion or a bad opinion, they still trust the people that they follow more so than, you know, sometimes mainstream media, they'll just go on social media, TikTok, Instagram, find out what the people they follow are talking about. And that's how they'll make their decisions about what they do with their lives, whether that be clothes choices or supplement choices or training or anything like that. A lot of people are getting their advice through social media. And those people that are just posting things because they get paid for it, they're getting found out, which I think three, four years ago, they weren't people were just going along with it and people were getting paid and posting about anything they wanted, even if it was just a pile of shit, basically. So where do you think it's going now? Do you think TikTok will be the new Instagram or do you think it will be something completely different? I think, yes, in, in short. I th- if you want my opinion on social media, I'd say if you look at it, YouTube is the mother site. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at like, if you said to me, you can have 100,000 followers on any platform, which one would you take? YouTube 100% of the time Mm -hmm. because you're pretty much people are if they're consuming your content on YouTube it's one of those ones where they are in they sit down they put it on their TV they don't they don't watch it on their phone anymore they put it on their TV and they sit down and they watch it for 15 minutes and they are in you look at people watching stuff on Instagram and TikTok they're scrolling on their phone and they're not really paying attention so something like six seconds is like the average time spent on 
like a video or something, something ridiculous, six seconds versus like a 15 minute YouTube video. Yeah. And so I think, I think if you're looking at what is the most successful platform or what, if you're an influencer or you're a content creator, I think YouTube is king. And I think the others are kind of fighting for scraps, but I absolutely, I think it really boils down to how most people are consuming content. And it's kind of like that new wave of consumers that age demographic are TikTok. Mm-hmm. So it's just like that, it's just shifting. So like the younger, the, like old people are still on Facebook, middle-aged people are on Instagram and the young people are TikTok. Mm-hmm. On the conversation around trust, quite an open question to you. Do you ever look back now and sort of say you promoted brands that you didn't necessarily believe in or you push products on social media you never actually used back in the day for money? No. Like, and, and that's something which why I'd hope that probably I've managed to sort of maintain some level of integrity and authenticity is that I've never needed to. Like, It's one of those things where when I was an Optimum athlete, I genuinely used their products and loved their products. And they were some of the best on the market, right? It was one of those ones where you could put your hand on your heart and say, you actually can't get better than this. Gold the, standard way. Yeah, gold, like, well, gold so. standard. And there's a reason why it was the best because Glambia, who own Optimum, mm-hmm. they're the largest whey producer in the world. They keep the good shit for themselves. And they sell the rest to everyone else. Yeah. So it's so it's one of those ones where like you can hand on heart say it's a really good product and it's something that I use. Same with Gymshark, that what they were doing in terms of for the price point and what they were producing in terms of design and efficacy and just cool factor, it was cool. It was good. I think there's been some paid posts out there, which is kind of like a job will come in and you'll go like, I like that. I would like give me one and I'll use it. And then I'll if I like it, I'll post about it. You know, and it's one of those things where I potentially wasn't using the product before, but it was brought to my attention by the brand. Hey, can we send you this and let, let us know what you think? Yeah, I like it. It's really good. Cool. Do you want to do a deal? Do you want to do like a paid post? Yeah, cool. But it's not one of those things where that I've never actually posted on any social media something which I think is shit. Do you know what I mean? I've never gone like, use this product. It'll change your life. And I haven't thought that. So yeah, I'd say... You know, I've never done teeth whitening or I do whiten my teeth, but I've never advertised it. Do you know what I mean? Like it's one of those things where I've never advertised and promoted something which I genuinely didn't think was a good, good sell. Because mm-hmm. I remember you being with Optimum and Gymshark. You were with both of those for quite some time. I was with Optimum for like eight years. I, was with, I wasn't with Gymshark for as long. I think people think I was there longer just because I was mates with Steve. And Steve, Steve was one of their like first signings, like, you know, yeah, he was kind of, he still is Mr. Gymshark. Like, he's still, he's still knocking around, but I would always kind of, he'd kind of they'd throw me some product and stuff, but I wasn't an official athlete for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I, I knew the guys, you know, in the brand team and all that sort of stuff. And we were friendly mm-hmm. through expos and all that sort of stuff. But I was, I think I was only with Gymshark for maybe three or four years, but I was with Optimum for eight but the, like, those Gymshark days and those Optimum, that was when it was like peak. It's the good days. Yeah. The golden when, days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when they were like booming, right? And there wasn't as much competition and it was just kind of, there were a few brands that were kind of really leading the way. And you were obviously like the face of, of both of those brands or like one of the faces of those brands. Because I remember just seeing you and these guys everywhere. There was only like a handful of people. Now there's thousands, right? There's honestly thousands of athletes that are in incredible shape and have huge followings. But back then there was probably only a handful that a lot of people just aspired to be. And you guys were probably the people that started this thing where there's like thousands of people in, in great shape and because everyone was aspiring to be like you guys and they saw the opportunities that you got through this. It was To be fair, it was, as I said, I said earlier, like it was a great, a great time, three or four years where 
you just got treated you got treated like a rock star like everywhere you went was great and that was super cool i can see why people would want that because it was you know pumps up your tires it makes you feel really good like you know i got to travel to china and brazil and you know australia and all these places and you get chauffeured round and you get ushered into the thing and you go on stage and you chat to twenty thousand people and then you go back off and it's literally like it's the you know people say living the dream it genuinely was living the dream so i can yeah i can actually absolutely put my hand on my heart and say it was a great time and i can see why you know if those opportunities are out there from being in shape and being on social media then yeah absolutely people want to kick on with that of those opportunities what is like the number one that sticks out to you that you're like that was actually incredible the number one thing that happened during that period it's a good question the thing that pops into my mind first is and it's a bit of a cheat because it's more than one opportunity but we did so steve i and a guy called nick went to australia and we did a tour with optimum called um, this is the one where you went up to with the crocodiles yeah, yeah. and it was Talk um, about a fanboy yeah yeah, yeah yeah it was it was called um yeah. it, it was called down under terrible name but we basically had to travel around australia for two weeks doing really australian things and it was for like an australian youtube series that got put out we got to do things like we did shark diet like shark tank great white shark diving and we did like croc wrestling and we did we ended up playing an afl went you know went to icon park and played for carlton and like the afl and that sort of stuff and went to you know, there's just loads of super cool things. Went up to Darwin and just traveled around Australia doing things that money can't buy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just opportunities where you get to go and do this. And it was, we had a film crew following us around for two weeks, just recording it all and putting it into this like mini documentary series. And it was just so much fun. Like we did, we did the Bondi surf rescue training. Like, you know, they stuck us in a pair of Speedos and a swim cap and basically made us do like the swim test and like the, all the, all the beach games and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, it's just brilliant. Right. So like you get to do cool things like that and never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that I'd be doing that. Yeah, I think I remember that for so fondly, not just because I remember watching it, but I think I was in Australia at the time. Right. I remember coming down to Melbourne just by chance. Yeah, there yeah. was an expo that, there that was, weekend. Yeah, there was, yeah. And we met you and then you gave us like this queue jump because the queue was huge for the optimum to stand. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you were like, yeah, just come to the front. And we jumped yeah. in. Recognize, like, the, recognize, recognize the English accent in you, yeah. come lads. Yeah, just jump on in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Recognize this game. Yeah, I actually remember that because you were with, you had a, your girlfriend with you, didn't you? Yeah, Holly yeah, 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 I remember. Yeah, because she was WBFF as well. She was. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that link there. And then yeah, we just got a queue jump. It was incredible. I felt like a superstar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know them. Good yeah, times, yeah. Me. Not boys, don't worry. <laughs> Steve, Steve, Steve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So moving on from there, like you're with Ghost now, you've very kindly brought us in some some ghost energy drinks so ghost has been around for how many years is ghost Uh, six and a half but predominantly in the u.s there wasn't much going on in the uk was there for a long time so it's a it's a u.s based company so headquarters in chicago distribution is out of tennessee and vegas so it's predominantly a u.s based company in terms of they have powders business they have a functional foods business they have an energy and rtd business but the large chunk of everything is all us based and one of the things that i've done since coming on board is trying to grow that international presence through influencers through other avenues through marketing partnerships all that sort of stuff so it's been a really great transition because the two boys that set it up are really good friends of mine like one of them is one of my best mates so it's one of those ones where i was actually there when they were brainstorming the whole thing like it's a funny story we were on an expo in lisbon seven years ago 
and it was the worst expo ever. And Ryan, who used to be the face of BSN, so Ryan Hughes used to be like the poster boy for BSN, IFBB Pro. I was there as the, you know, because BSN and Optimum are owned by the same company. Mm -hmm. So we shared a stand and it was like, Ryan was there, I was there for Optimum. And we were in Lisbon at this random expo, which is, there was just nobody there. (laughs) Like it was like a really, really weird one. And so we ended up just like chatting, having a good time. Dan, who's the current CEO of Ghost, flew in for a couple of days because he's got Portuguese roots as well. And we just ended up having this amazing like three, four days in Portugal where they were starting to, you know, brainstorm and, and plan and business plan Ghost. And there was like a bit of a, you know, when we were drunk in a nightclub one of the nights, they're like, look, when the time is right, we'll come for you. Like we'll come, we'll we'll come for you. Yeah, like we'll come, we'll we'll come for you. We'll buy you out of your optimum contract. Whatever we need to do, we'll we'll come for you. And I was like, like okay, like Lord of the Rings or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like taken. Like uh, I will find you. <laughs> Have a very specific skill set. No, and it was like kind of one of those things where we didn't really talk about it very much from then on. And it was kind of like I've always looked on with what they were doing with like quiet pride. Mm-hmm. Like it was one of those ones where I'd see the success they're having in the US. And I've always been like, they're doing such a good job. And they always used to send me the products. And it was like, genuinely, they're really amazing products. Like, you know, the protein flavors are unbelievable. The the efficacy and the ingredient profile they put in all of their products is, they're almost like, let's not look at how we can make the most money out of this product. Let's just build the best fucking product we can and it'll sell. And that's the thing, like, even if we make $1 on a tub, it's going to be so good we're going to sell 30,000 of them. Do you know what I mean? And that's kind of the, you know, they've done everything and they haven't, they haven't cut corners and they've just been really authentic to what they wanted to do just to create the best sports nutrition and lifestyle brand possible. Although I was with Optimum, I've always kind of looked on and thought, boy's doing good. Mm-hmm. Like they're doing good. And I'm really pleased and happy for them. And then one day I get a call from Ryan and Dan and said, you know, that time when we talked about in that nightclub and I was like, no, and they're like, we said we're coming for you. Like, let's go. And I was like, and it just so happened that my optimum contract was kind of running to a close. It was well, again, as I said, a lot of the stuff is stars aligning, right? Mm -hmm. It's all about being in the right place at the right time and being in a position to act on it. And I was just like, what was offered to me in terms of the optimum contract wasn't what I wanted. And what was being offered for the ghost contract was something completely different. And it was kind of me using my degrees, using my brain, using my experience to you know, step away from being in front of the camera mm-hmm. and kind of work behind the scenes, knowing the industry from both sides, mm-hmm. from being, you know, a creator and an influencer and, a, you know, an athlete. And then also by running a business here in the UK for 10 years, mm-hmm. knowing how to manage a team of 40 and et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it was just kind of the perfect opportunity where I was like, you know what, now's the time. Now's the time for me to just double down and take a punt on this. Yeah, there's not many people with more skin in the game from both sides than yourself so that's a good move from them but also i think i think it's one of those ones where and they say this all the time like like life is all about who you go to war with right it's surround yourself with people that you enjoy their company you enjoy their vibe the vibrations on a molecular level Mm -hmm. like if you vibe with people and you you know it's one of those things where surround yourself with those people and i think i've always got on well with those guys and we've always said like you know if we go to battle make sure you've got a a crew so like i think i was just like a little small piece in the jigsaw that they're putting together on what's going to be an incredible journey for the brand over the next three to five years what is the plan so like you're looking after the uk or europe as a whole 
No, so I actually head up the wrong word, but I oversee the Global Influencer Programme. So it's a case of we have a roster of 100 plus influencers slash athletes across loads of different categories from wellness to sports nutrition to esports to loads of different things. So, And I basically look after the strategy, the recruitment, quantifying everything, making, you know, putting a business case for what's going to make this program, this, you know, it's fairly significant chunk of the business, like in terms of the revenue generated, what's going to make this program as successful as possible. And that's kind of, I've got like an open remit. And so, you know, in the last year, two years, we've dug into analytics, like trying to work out, we were talking about it earlier, be much more sophisticated with how we use influencers and know for every dollar that we're spending on them, like what does that ROI look like? How can we quantify that? How can we objectively look at something as an investment? And if we're going to spend a a dollar of ghosts money, what do we expect back and why? And so it's just having that slightly broader appreciation of strategy, recruitment, management, because I think that's probably the hardest thing. It's like we were talking about influencers and and one of the hardest things to do, and you'll know this firsthand from your work at Pure Sports, is influencers and creators are quite hard to manage. They're not an easy population i always joke in the offices it's like herding chickens because it's kind of like try it sounds stupid but like someone probably my generation you say post twice a month you know we're not going to tell you what to post just make sure you for the brand awareness make sure you know part of your deliverables post twice a month Mm -hmm. as part of your contract and the people that don't it's kind of like eh you know what I mean? So it's just kind of like, there's much more to it than just, oh, they're shit or they're being shit. It's a case of like, why? Why are they not doing it? Like, how do we get the most out of them? We've made the investment in them in, in terms of giving them a contract, making them a ghost athlete, et cetera, et cetera. Like, how do we get the most out of that partnership to drive our ROI and make sure the partnership's successful? And so it's a case of really trying to create a culture within my management, within my territory managers, within my site managers. You know, I've got a like a girl in Australia, I've got a guy in Europe, we've got a guy in UK, got two or three in North America that are all pulling, four in North America that are all pulling hard to manage the talent that we have so that we get the most out of the partnership. And it's just, it's a really interesting and very different job to what I'm used to sort of day to day. And it's, it's, I love it. Like it's really good. Because I think influencer marketing is relatively new in the grand scheme of things right social media hasn't been around that long and the way influencer marketing has developed over the years and it is constantly developing one because the social media platforms change all the time like weekly yeah and also like the way the customer perceives these things is changing as well so you're constantly having to try and stay one step ahead and create new content what do you look for when you're identifying a potential new talent through like their social media or is it just like having a conversation with them what is it that you're looking for like what is it that's like an x factor to be like cool you would be a perfect candidate to be a ghost ambassador or influencer yeah i'd say the first and foremost thing that we look for they've got to be a good brand fit right so if you look at a ghost athlete like they've got to look and feel and the content they produce would be in line with us like our values as a brand right so if they're into, and if you guys know, but like you look look at our cans, right? It was very influenced by like street culture, street fashion, lifestyle. Obviously we have our heritage in sports nutrition and training and wellness and fitness. So it's kind of like, and also esports, kind of like our biggest sector. So it's, it's looking at people and saying, 
are you a genuine, authentic ghost advocate? If we gave you all the products, or even before we give you the products, like the first thing is like, do you buy them? A lot of the guys we've signed buy ghost products before they're a ghost athlete, which is kind of like a massive tick in the box. Mm -hmm. Because it's kind of like, they're going to part with their own hard-earned cash because they believe in the products, first and foremost. That's great. First is like, are they a brand fit? Yes or no? If it's a yes, then we go a little bit deeper. What's their social coverage like? What's their social voice, their footprint? What does it look like? What platforms are they big on? What are their engagement levels like? How do they talk and how do they interact with their audience? Is that aligned to what we're trying to do? If we've got somebody that never talks about sports nutrition or wellness products or that sort of stuff in their content, will it be completely alien for us to suddenly hijack two posts a month from their feed or for their TikTok and say, hey, post about ghosts? Will that connect with their audience? It's a much bigger sort of take a step back and are these people, if we swap this part of what they're posting with a ghost thing, will that work? Or do we think that'll work? And then it's a case of like, you know, we talked about it earlier, like what platforms are they posting on? Right now, full honesty, we would be looking at YouTube, TikTok as the primary sort of platforms for driving a big audience. So if we're looking at social voice, like big YouTube following, big TikTok, ticks big boxes. Mm -hmm. Gaming is Twitch. Gaming is Twitter. So that's the thing. Like you look at which sector these and which bucket these talented people fit into. But the platform we look for is different for each. Like fitness is still pretty Instagram heavy, pretty YouTube heavy. Gaming is very Twitch, very Discord, very Twitter. So it's things like that. So it's just about having an appreciation for which bucket is being hit with each platform and then trying to maximize the company's ability to get them talking about the products in an authentic way to their community. And that's pretty much it. The people that may be listening to this and the majority of people, because like the three of us in this room take it for granted, right? We understand exactly what influencer marketing is, yeah. what someone would be asked and that kind of stuff. Because if someone turned around to me and said, hey, we're going to pay you this lump sum per month to do two posts, I'd be like, well, if I do four, will you double it? Because yeah. for me, I'm just like, whatever, like I'll post that. I don't really care. Yeah. But I think some people don't quite understand like, what you would ask of someone as an influencer, is it just posts? Is it event appearances? Like what is it that you actually ask of them specifically? And is it different on different platforms? So like on YouTube, would you ask them for say a full video or review, or would you ask them for like the odd feature here and there? Is it case by case? So each person will be slightly different depending on what their YouTube normally talks about. What is it that you ask from these people? And then how do you calculate the return on that? So it is very much a case by case. We have like an, an almost like a standard template, but we look at everybody on a case by case basis and then kind of adjust it. So, you know, you've got to take into account things like how often are they posting? Because if they're only posting once a month, you know, then it's on a platform, then it's kind of like you can't ask them to do two. Yeah, the David Lades, yeah, people like that, exactly. <laughs> post like once every six months. Exactly. So there's, you, you've got to be realistic and, and understand that all of a sudden, like you can't monopolize these somebody's social platforms but like we would usually things that are, are fairly temporary things like instagram stories snapchats that sort of stuff that gone and hearing you know gone and 60 you know gone to 24 hours they're gone you post it it's gone so we'd, we'd probably ask for across the board we usually say you know one instagram story featuring the product tagging us a week mm -hmm. depending on how often you post an instagram feed whether it's a reel, whether it's a competition giveaway, whatever it is, like that sort of thing is acceptable. 
you're on YouTube, a YouTube mention, whether it's a day in the life, whether it's a what I eat, what I take, is my stack, that sort of stuff, like, you know, a YouTube mention. TikTok, a couple of TikToks a month. And what you post on Reels can be the same as what you post on TikTok. It's the same. It doesn't matter. You know, Twitter mention, that sort of stuff. So we tailor it. it it's not about volume for us. It's about authenticity. And like some people, we have to really drag them over the coals to try and get them to just hit their base deliverables. Mm -hmm. And some people post 60 times what they should because they are naturally brand advocates because they, they walk around with their phones and with their GoPros and with their cameras and they're drinking Ghost Energy every day. They're taking the whey after a workout. They're taking the, the pre before a workout. Do you know what I mean? Like they're, it's part of their life. And so forth. they're sharing their life with their community and therefore it's such an authentic fit that they over deliver on, on what they should be doing. Do you find that's detrimental? No, not really. No. Like some people it is, some people it isn't. Like it, it really doesn't, there's no rhyme or reason to it. You know, one guy's, I think he's got like 350,000 followers on Instagram and the same on YouTube. It's like $1.8 million in sales a year. Do you know what I mean? It's ridiculous. And, you know, he hits his, he hits his deliverables, but it doesn't really go above. And then you've got somebody with a bigger audience, you know, a million followers on Instagram and a million on subscribers on YouTube. And he hits double the guy's deliverables and doesn't do half as well. So it, it's, it's, it's strange and it's, the way people do it, you know, how much people trust you, all that sort of stuff. And when it comes to quantifying an ROI, there's obviously simple things that we can do, right? You, we can track sales, code use, that sort of stuff, which gives you a really, really clear return on investment. You know, we pay them $1, they sell two. Mm -hmm. are like, you know, but then there's other stuff, like if we're looking at social voice, like how, what share of the, the channel, what share of that pie of what people are consuming is now ghost i think our top 10 athletes in north america have a social voice of about three and a half million across the three big platforms mm -hmm. right so they've got three and a half million followers so that's a good amplification on that you know i think we've just signed in the last month we've just signed six people to our esports program and they are unproven like they're you got any data behind them for sales it's fairly new category and i think they've between them got three and a half million followers on their key mm -hmm. platforms so it's a case of like it's a punt and it's one of those things where like yes we can look at sales but we've also got to see like how many people are seeing our products and maybe not using a code to buy or they go to gnc and buy or they go to holland and barrett and they buy they don't use a code mm -hmm. so there's like that yes, we want to see sales. Like sales is good because it's money in the bank for you. They get commission as well. But there's a wider conversation around brand awareness. How many people are seeing our product on people's feeds, on their stories, on their things, and are not buying it through the website. They're buying it on Amazon or they're buying it on, you know, in a bricks and mortar store. And that sort of stuff can't be overlooked as well. So when we look at kind of like the perfect unicorn of what does that look like? It's somebody that has a big following they post regularly, it's an authentic fit with Ghost, and they drive brand awareness and sales. Mm -hmm. Ticking a lot of boxes. One thing I'm really intrigued on, and a bit of a kind of personal question to you is, with brands like in the past, say with Pure Sport, we kind of, our big selling factor is we want all our ambassadors to come into the office, meet us, yeah. be a part of the team, take them for a coffee. They're not gonna be plugged with media when they come in, it's a really yeah, relaxed yeah. thing. We want them to feel a part of the brand. Like with your experience with brands, did you ever go into the offices, meet the team, meet the you know supply chain team that aren't at the front of the brand? Uh, what's your experience with that and kind of relationship building? 
Yeah, it's certainly, and I'd say that's probably more of the old school because just being in it for a long time, it's kind of like that's old school networking, right? It was, you go into the fact, especially when I used to work with Optimum in Chicago, like we'd go into HQ and you'd go around and you'd you'd speak to everybody in the design team. You'd speak to everybody in the thing because they're the ones that are really making that, they're, they're the ones propping up the whole magic show. Right, as in they're the ones that are editing the photos that are going in the magazines. Then you go to the magazine team, and they're the ones that are allocating the budget to put you on a cover, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's like absolutely like it's one of those things where most of the big longer term brand partnerships that I had, it's all about the relationships that you have, and it's probably why I was there for so long because more money gets offered here, more money gets offered there. But the reason you stay somewhere is because you have some level of loyalty and you enjoy the process of working with the people who you go to war with, right? It's a case of like, you've got to surround yourself with the people that, you know, you want to do a good job with and for. And I think that's the difference with Ghost at the moment, right? The culture in the office is unbelievable. You go in there, it's foosball tables and bars and all that sort of stuff. It's a really great culture and everybody goes above and beyond for the brand because they love it and they love the people they work with. They love the products. All the athletes come in at some point. Do you know what I mean? Like we, we host shoots and activation days and we run competitions and all that sort of stuff. Like we, we did one recently, which was, I think we said something like whoever posts the most, whoever tags ghost the most, like regardless of anything else, whoever we've, and we've got software that records it all. Whoever does the most posts in the month of August, We'll fly them to Las Vegas where we're headlining, we're sponsoring a music festival and you'll come VIP with the Ghost fam for a music festival. And just go. That was it. Super simple. And it was just like, it was just like fun, right? It's just like, you know, if you, and we, you know, we had some people post over a hundred times in a month, like, you know, just on their story and on their thing. And it's cool. Cause it's just like, it gets, it gives people the opportunity to get involved on the terms that they want to get involved in. Mm-hmm. And it gives them a carrot to, to we'll fly you from Australia to Vegas and we'll hang out with you guys for a couple of days in Vegas and have just a really good time. Mm-hmm. And it's that sort of stuff that as a company, it's really important to just make sure the relationships you're building with your team and like with your athlete team, with your influencers is, is really authentic. And it's something that over the last year with all of the guys that I manage around the world, it's like, I'm a bit of a badger when it comes to admin. I love admin. And I'm just kind of like, do your call logs. So like I said, you've got, if you're managing 12 to 15 people on your talent roster, make sure you call them at least once a month mm-hmm. and ask them, are you getting paid? Have you got paid this month? Like, is, has everything gone okay with, with accounts? Yeah. Have you got your product? Like, is there anything you're missing? Anything you need? Have you got your content planned out for the month? We've got these launches coming up. Do you need any help? Et cetera, et cetera. And finally, how are you? Like, mm-hmm. how's everything going? Like, what's going on for you? And like, really get to know your talent and get to know what makes them tick and how you can not only get the most out of them as an, an athlete and ambassador, but how you can get the most out of them as people. Mm-hmm. Do you want to come to the office? See, I see you live in Minnesota. Like we're in Chicago. It's an hour flight. Do you want to come in and spend the day in the office? Meet some people that sort of stuff. And it makes a difference because when you're asking people to go above and beyond, which we all do, right? There'll be times when we need people to post for a big launch or something and we need them to go and create content last minute because there's a delay in getting the packages to them and we're up, we're, you know, we're up against the clock. If you've got that goodwill and that brand equity and that brand sort of relationship, it goes a million miles further than if it's just a transaction. And I'm not slagging off other brands or anything, but I think that community element, and it's you look at big companies, my protein, all that sort of stuff. It, it can be very, very transactional, and the feedback you get is very transactional. But I think the more community based you are as a brand, both with the content you put out and the, the culture you develop within your own roster, it's only a win. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think you and it's something you guys do at Pure Pure Sports incredibly well. Yeah, it was, it was actually the way I learned that was 
probably the way you found out about it as well was when I, in my previous role, I had no experience, no qualifications, but I was working with people that were also working with Gymshark. And I was always like, why do you guys like buy into Gymshark so much? And you always like posting about them. You're always talking about them. They were like, oh, because like the people that are, are managing them, the George Hicktons and people yeah. like that. They Shout were like, out to Big G. Yeah, yeah, they were like, they're just like mates of ours because they hang out with them. They go for Nando's with them. You know, like I remember seeing, I think it was George used to buy Obi anime things and yeah. that kind of stuff. And it's like, he's buying them stuff and he's like just treating them as a friend. So that person like feels really, really part of the brand because they know someone on a personal level because you could just, you know, there's so many brands out there that would just pay you to do a post, right? And if they're going to do that, the chances of you going to the next brand that are going to pay you more is higher versus if a brand came to you and they said, right, we're going to pay you more. It'd be like, no, do you know what? I've actually got loyalty to this brand because I know the people behind the brand they meet more of the team, they go above and beyond for me. So therefore I'm going to go above and beyond for them. So yeah, that's something I learned a few years ago. And I think it's, it, it's harder, you know, it's going to take more time and effort, but it pays off in the end. You're hundred percent right. As in, I sit down on a lot of contract renewal talks. So when we're renewing contracts with athletes and, you know, a lot of them, you know, they do really well and they want to pay rise and they say, oh, you know, I'm being offered, you know, three times more by this brand, but I don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. Like I want to stay here can we do something like I don't I don't need what they're offering me but is there a you know is there something we can do and you know nine times out of ten you say do you know what you're a fucking superstar mm-hmm. you're smashing your sales you're, you're super easy to work with let's give you a pay rise let's see if we can renew that contract at a level that works for you and works for us but also we really appreciate the fact that you love ghost you love the brand and you're willing to not just jump onto the next paycheck which is even bigger mm-hmm. that shows you know if we're having those conversations weekly it shows that we're doing our job as a brand, as a brand and as an athlete management team. Yeah. Right. I think, um, Have we, I don't even know how long we've been going. Nearly an hour 20, but I also wanted wow. to delve into like other things like city athletic and all those kind of things. So I think we'll probably have to come to a, a part two. We'll have to get you in again. We'll have to, we'll have to do it again. A few months we'll Money a mile away. Two. I literally walked here in 25 minutes. Brilliant. All right, we'll do a part two because there's other things that I dug up and other things that I know about you as well that we'll delve into next time. But. Well, okay. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you guys for having me down to the office. Uh, that was awesome. I'm, Thanks I'm a, for being so open and, and honest. And I'm a big fan of the brand and I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. So anything I can do to help with that, you know, you know, I'm in. And we'll just get you bouncing off the walls with the, uh, with the new tins. You're going to need a few more of those because I well, make a lot of cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, our new, our new pre, we, we launched a new pre-workout last week called Legend All Out which has 400 milligrams of caffeine. It's got 300 milligrams of un- upfront punch in the face and then 100 milligrams of extended release. Plus- oh, That'll get me going in the morning. It's great, mate. It's genuinely, <laughs> I, took it, I took it when I flew to Chicago last week and obviously they're six hours behind. And by the time I went to the gym on the first day, I think it was 6 p.m. So 6, 6 p.m. in the evening, which was midnight my time and I took one of these and I like, literally stayed up for another six hours. It was absolutely brilliant. And then it, it literally killed jet lag dead in its in its tracks i i didn't get jet lag at all that trip <laughs> didn't sleep for like four days didn't sleep for like four no, days it was it. great like i went to bed at midnight and i woke up at 6 a.m which is pretty much what i do in london and then my body clock was adjusted that's a life hack it's a life hack right for, there for context for people that listen to this and maybe don't know how much 400 milligrams i think an espresso has got like 60 to 80 milligrams i think it's got 90 like most most of those bougie boutique ones that sell that you sell around here okay so it's uh, like a quadruple espresso and some yeah yeah, yeah yeah oh yeah it's, it's, get that uh, down yet yeah. it's, it's a hardy it's a good one well thanks very much for coming on it was a pleasure and in, where can people find you 
everyone knows your Instagram. I don't know. So yeah, I'm social media wise. I'm just at Sean Stafford, S-H-A-U-N-S-T-A-F-F-O-R-D on Instagram. I think it's the same on Twitter. I think it's the same on TikTok. Yeah, you're on TikTok. Oh, nah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a joke. I, I am on TikTok, but only so I can watch what our talent are doing. But yeah, just, yeah, I'm sure if you Google me, it'll come up. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks Great. very much, man. Cheers. Yo, thank you, Pure Sport fan, for tuning in. As a valued listener, we'd like to offer you a 20% discount code site wide on puresportcbd.com. Use the code PROJECT20 to level up your life. If you like this podcast, like, subscribe, and share with your friends. And remember, no stress, stay blessed, and we'll catch you next time.